Hey everybody, welcome to the New World Pictures Podcast bonus episode, Corn-tober. I'm Ryan, with me as always is Mark. I, I really like corn. And Erica. Who doesn't, Mark? Great point. <laughs> Great point. As I said, It's an easy point. It's Honestly, it's an easy point. It's like saying, I really like sugar. Uh, I like <laughs> chocolate. Um, I, I, I really like wine. Also, if we said we didn't like corn, what would happen? It's corn-tober. You have to like corn. That's Otherwise, right. you could get it. You don't want to get it from you he say you really behind like the rose. <laughs> but then you would be the gas station guy that they take <laughs> out. You don't want to be that guy. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's a good point. You're going to leave a, really a dog point. without an owner. And now he's just now he's just a street dog. Now he's actually just, a cornfield dog. Mangy and feral. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of Children of the Corn, uh, tonight we are going to talk to screenwriter and writer, TV writer, David Simpkins, who uh, many people will know as the writer of Adventures in Babysitting. Plus, he's done a ton of work in television. I don't. I think what will surprise people is that he actually worked for New World Pictures starting out in his career, and he is instrumental. And I will not spoil how, but he is instrumental uh, to getting Children of the Corn made. And he tells a story about his history with the material goes back even further. But he is instrumental in how New World Pictures got to make. Children of the Corn. You could argue without David Simpkins, we would not be having Corntober. Mm. That's right. Absolutely. Correct. We Another are... great point, Mark. That's yep. two great points. And also, <laughs> if you didn't make that point, David Simpkins would kill us. That's right, Ryan. <laughs> great third point. Our lives are in danger. So we, of course, are going to talk to, to um, David Simpkins a bunch about his career, how he started off, his time at New World, Children of the Corn. We're also going to talk to him a bunch about adventures and babysitting. We're going to talk to him about his TV writing career with TV shows such as Adventures in Briscoe County Jr., which we were very enthusiastic about talking about. Yes. Maybe a a little too enthusiastic, (laughs) but, you know, I might have played my hand a little heavy on that one. But that's okay. You know, sometimes sometimes you just got to show your true colors. That's right. Like how I love corn. (laughs) <laughs> and Briscoe County Jr., which I believe is available on Tubi. So you can check out the show there. If you're unfamiliar with it, check it out. You're going to love it. Bruce Campbell, The Old West, David Simpkins, a bunch of great people. We also could talk to him a little bit about another movie he made uh, called Alien Raiders. We're going to talk to him about a couple of recent projects where he did a TV show called Powers and another TV show called Woo Assassins. He's done a ton of work. We were only able to talk to him about so much, but. We try, we, we get into it. So let's listen to our talk with David Simpkins. As you may know, we talked to Daniel Waters, who yeah. uh, is also a, you know, alumnus of Beyond Our Control, which is a show I am now totally fascinated by because I know if I was in high school and such a thing existed because I was, I was the cool, the cool <laughs> the cool goth kid in my high school who was obsessed with sketch comedy. So just right. the coolest kid Lots you could of, find. Lot, yeah. Very dateable. Yeah. Yeah. Just, <laughs> yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Prom King, you can just you can write the rest of the story. Yeah. Obvious. Gotcha. It's all obvious. 
so yeah so i i, I just would obsessed with the show because i know that it would have been if something like that existed i would i would have yeah. anything i would have given up a kidney in order to get into that show it was a thing you know it was ubiquitous for me and a lot of high school kids growing up my older sister uh, got me interested in the show she watched it i think i started watching it when i was about 10 or 11 mm. and it was it, it was not unusual to me because you know back then we had what nbc abc cbs and that was about it and then maybe a public station a few years later but no, it was just a thing on TV on Saturdays and we just watched it and it was just there. And um, it's it's uniqueness was completely lost on me. And I think most of the kids who lived in South Bend and who watched it and eventually worked on the show, it was it was kind of a little local institution, little underground high school kid kind of a thing. And yeah, there's uh, I don't know if Dan told you this, but a, uh, a woman uh, who is a television historian this is a few months ago now, she was doing a, an essay or an article for something highfalutin, and she was researching uh, the Peabody Awards, uh, which are uh, awards given out for the best Peabodies. I have no idea what, <laughs> what that actually means. but And and the Peabody Awards in this case were, were uh, given to uh, television shows. And she saw this footnote that this locally produced high school catch comedy show sketch had won a Peabody. Uh, in Indiana. And she was like, what? And so she started researching it and has become incredibly obsessed. And she uh, wrote this really big article. She interviewed a whole bunch of us uh, via Zoom uh, and email and um, has put together this uh, really comprehensive article uh, about the history of the show and all the uh, kids who went through it and some who ended up in the business. And she, the last we heard is, is she's so into it now. She's uh, thinking about writing a book. Wow. Uh, based on on the show so we'll see what happens there but um yeah it's it was a it was a great experience and i think it put a lot of us uh on this path because you know you're 13 14 years old and somebody's handing you a camera and uh telling you you've got 30 minutes of airtime to fill and you're selling commercials literally selling commercials to local merchants to rent the studio space and to buy props and to do all that stuff so uh it was it was literally television production for you know uh adolescence but it was a great experience it was a lot of fun who now not to uh, to jog your memory here but but who who was with you on the on the show who was the other people with you? uh i went through it with um larry karaszewski uh dan waters was a little bit after me dean norris mm-hmm. breaking bad he was a mm-hmm. year or two after me ellen akins uh who's a novelist now i'm not sure what she's written lately but but uh she's written some well-received books uh, Kate Doherty, who is a costumer and wardrobe designer, she's been working in Chicago theater for decades. Let's see who else. Uh, a couple years after me, uh, Tracy Page Johnson, who created Blues Clues, uh, mm-hmm. went through it. Wow. We had a we had a reunion um, in 2001, and before the and this is the first time anybody thought to do this. We all gathered in back in South Bend, and a call went out uh, for everybody to start, you know, whatever scripts or books or pictures you had in your basements or closets, please send them to one sort of central repository. We're going to scan them and we're going to do all this and that. And Tracy's scripts, uh, these blue mimeograph things that were printed out, you know, every Thursday night prior to the Saturday night taping, the backs of her scripts had these doodles on them. It's blue. It's the dog. She was drawing the dog in high school. And uh, yeah, it was crazy. Wow. Crazy. But wow. um, anyway, yeah. 
Yeah. So when we talked to Daniel, he said that you were like the Chevy Chase. Oh, Chris Webb. I'm sorry. One more thing. Oh. One more thing. Chris Webb was in it with me. He's uh, he's one of the co-writers credited on Toy Story 2. He went through with me as well. Oh, wow. Sorry to interrupt. Yes. Oh. No. Yeah. No, I was saying Daniel Waters called you the Chevy Chase of the show. And I'm not quite sure how I got that <laughs> reputation, but uh, I'll take it. For what that's worth, although Chevy, <laughs> I know is is not well. Anyway, I won't say. Let's just say Chevy then, living. not Chevy now. Chevy, Chevy yeah. Chase, I'm sure yeah. of the Saturday Night Live era of Chevy Chase. I'm sure. I I was about thirty pounds lighter, and I had more hair, and um, and I think my jaw was a little sharper. So I tend I tend to get you know those kind of newsman roles, or mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> there was. One sketch we did, I think I'd come back from college. It was freshman year, and I'd come back to visit the studio. And they were doing a bit called Bachelor Uncle, and it was a kid's show. And the main character was was this bachelor. It was me uh, with, like, you know, two days' growth of beard and a T-shirt coming out of a bedroom smoking a cigarette. And it was like, you know, hey, kids, uh, hi, uh, what, uh, what commercials, cartoons are we doing? And then about this moment, a woman walks out of the bedroom, scantily clad. So it was this really bizarre <laughs> kid show hosted by your bachelor uncle. <laughs> anyway, I think Larry Karaszewski wrote that one. I'm not sure. That's really funny. That's great. Yeah. Uh, did uh, Donald Borchers work with you on that as well? Or yes, did he you... did. Donald, Don was a... Um, Don was going to Notre Dame and uh, okay. he was Make, an accounting that, that major. Makes sense. Yep. And, and he came on board as an advisor. We had, we had three uh, grownups, uh, three adult advisors. One was Dave Williams who created the show. He started the program and he was the, the promotions director the advertising guy. Um, he wrote all the copy for all the shows and uh, would get all the NBC press releases and turn them into uh, local TV speak. And um, we had Dave, we had Joe, who was a sales advisor, and then uh, Joe Dundon, and then Denny Laughlin, who was the, the station's art director. And Don saw the show, and uh, and we the show was taped in the TV station on the campus, so it was all cheek by jowl there. And um, mm-hmm. I think Don, if you talk to Don, you can get the straight scoop. But I think Don called up Dave or somehow got a hold of the station and said, "Hey, I want to be invited and be involved." And so Don came on board as a as a sales advisor. And um, I think he was there, I God, I want to say just one year, maybe, maybe two. I'm not even sure. But uh, I was out. I graduated in 77. I think he might have graduated around that time, too. But it was through Don Borchers years later. My dog is behind me going crazy. Um, <laughs> it's a beautiful uh, dog, It was though. Don Borchers who, who years later uh, was working for a producer named Sandy Howard. Right. Uh, who who brought who brought you spasms? Mm-hmm. And uh-huh. uh, what was the other one? Secrets of the Phantom Caverns. I mean, these were these were like really low budget BC movies. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Don was working for Sandy, and uh, when I moved to LA in 1982, Don was in Mexico shooting Triumphs of a Man Called Horse right. with Richard Harris, I believe. And um, so I started calling Don, uh, not knowing he was out of town and getting a busy signal or maybe an old time voice, old timey uh, voice uh, uh, <laughs> recorder machine. machine, whatever they're called. And um, he finally called me back. And um, when he got back in town and, and uh, you know, it was a lot of, hey, Dave, hey, Don. And, and uh, I think we went out and shot pool and we talked for a little bit. And then he told me that there was a, um, a job opening at Sandy's. Sandy's offices were in the, um, I want to call it the Laird Studios, but it's that... It, 
it's not Laird anymore. It's just that mansion, that fake front mansion in Culver City that mm-hmm. looks like it was David O. Selznick's old uh, stomping grounds, RKO. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. But Sandy had an office in there. And uh, and so Don said they need somebody to answer phones for like three days until they got their person back or something. And so I I said, sure, I can answer phones. And um, promptly, promptly started answering <laughs> answering the phones. His name was Sandy Howard, and he was a, he was a great guy, mm-hmm. funny guy. Uh, had been producing forever, uh, but I I kept answering the phone saying Sydney Harold, Sydney Harold Productions. <laughs> I didn't remember his name, um, and I was really nervous. But like on the second day, because I could type, uh, I was a pretty fast typist, and uh, for God knows I don't know why, but I just was, and um, I went to. Uh, some of the offices there and I met uh, Sandy's uh, uh, development person, Sa- uh, Sandra Bailey was her name. She's passed on, but Sandra was, um, you know, reading all the submissions and, and doing script notes. And uh, this is way before computers. It was IBM Selectrix. And, and I asked her if she needed any help and she handed me this stack of some material. And I made that thing last six months. And, and by then I was reading scripts and covering scripts and, learning how budgets worked and all that kind of stuff. And I'd moved out to LA specifically to, I thought I wanted to be a director. Um, okay. I was going to ask, because discovered... you, you went to University of Iowa, University having of Iowa. done this show in, in, in high school. And I, that's what I was wondering. Were you wanting to be a performer or did you want to be a writer or did you want to, like, that's what I was curious, what you came out to LA doing. So you wanted I to be a director. I came out to LA, well, first of all, so, in high school, uh, we did not know how good we had it. We had all these tools and all this time and all this support. And we are, um, in the later years, I was sort of in charge of the film unit. And uh, I was uh, working with a Bolex camera with like a 20 second wind and we had hundred foot spools of film. And so it was me doing a lot of the photography and then a lot of the editing as well. So we're upstairs in the newsroom back in this little corner editing with a little, you know, tiny little moviola deal in the reels and Mm -hmm. hot glue uh, splicing Mm -hmm. machines and scraping emulsion off and all this stuff I'm talking about that nobody has any idea what that is but (laughs) um uh so then I got you were clicking edits (laughs) you were putting images together like you do they gave me um (laughs) I get to college and they gave me a a little super eight camera and they said uh okay this is how this is how the fade works and this is how I'm like what and uh, we had a we had a teacher there who had been doing this a couple of years, and he said, "Look, you guys, are, I want you guys to go out and shoot your first thing, but please don't take your favorite song and like do some kind of like lip sync to it. Just don't do it because there's no market for that." Two years later, MTV. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so that was the school at the time, and it was yeah. it was very limiting to me. And so I ended up as a freshman. Uh, I should say sophomore, I ended up drifting into the theater department because four years of, of, of acting and writing on television, you, you learn timing and you learn listening and you, you learn how to not uh, act. You know, you just, you're doing comedy, so it's very broad, but, but you're also, it, it just made, it made the whole thing very comfortable. Mm-hmm. So you're I started moment. auditioning. Yeah, started auditioning for plays and in, in college, and I started getting cast in a lot of stuff. And so I'm still making movies, um, but I'm really, I'm really in the theater department and, and, and loving every second of it. And I ended up doing summer stock there and then summer stock later in Illinois. But what I really loved in my, in my film classes was actually editing. I didn't, 
I loved editing in high school, but when I actually got, you know, my own movies and my stuff and sort of putting it together, I, I, um, I just found that process of sitting with the material much more satisfying. Hmm. Um, and also I wasn't in charge of anybody. I didn't have to wrangle people to be on set or handle hmm. this or grip that or do whatever. And I'm pretty much, it may not look that way right now, but I'm pretty much of an introvert. And so even talking to actors, uh, I, I just was very, it was very intimidating to me. Hmm. Um, and yet you were coming to LA to direct them? Yes. And, and was quickly disabused of that. Uh, when I, when I had that <laughs> idea, when I got here, um, with, with Don. So I did, uh, six months at Sandy's and then Don got hired to be a VP of production for the new, new world. Correct. And, uh, and he took me with him. So I was there as a development executive for, I want to say about four years and at, at um, new world, but at Sandy, at, at Sandy, new, it, yeah. At Sandy Howard Productions, did you do you remember any of the productions that were going on? Because they actually produced a few things that were released for New World. Yes. Well, that we, was, we, uh, we talked to Joel Swasson, who got his start <clears throat> there with Sandy as well. I know Joel very well. I haven't talked to him in years, but yes. Yeah. yeah and we, Michael Murphy. Did you talk to Michael Murphy? We didn't talk to Michael Murphy, though. Okay. He would, They were partners for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. I, I know that that's true of them, but. And I yeah. know, like you are listed as writing, working on Deadly Force, which was a Sandy Howard production. I, am I in uh, there? I did. I have no idea. <laughs> I guess so. And <laughs> okay. I know that Joel worked on there, so I thought there might be a connection. Yeah, um, th there was a lot of cross pollinization between the sort of the B movie factories back then, and and um, uh, yeah, Deadly Force, and was that Wings Hauser? That was yep. Wings Hauser. That wasn't a New World movie, but that is that yeah. is a movie. Sandy yeah. Howard. They also uh, Joel then wrote part of Hambone and Hilly, which was released. Oh my God, Hambone and Hilly. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you Forgot remember, so you remember that one? I do. I remember sitting in the screening room and watching dailies for that and going, what? <laughs> <laughs> what is this? Yeah. Yeah. But still. Um, so yeah. Oh my God. What else? And, and, uh, oh, dailies for, um, tough turf. Yeah. Uh, Tough turf would have been a little would have been a little bit later. That would have been a little bit later, sure. right? And right, that's right. Also, that's good to know, though. That is uh, also yeah. with Don Donald Borchers uh, mm -hmm. produced that one. But it, mm -hmm. I was going to ask if you knew anything else that you were working on. Also, uh, I should say Angel started at Sandy Howard Productions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and and is that I was wondering if that is what sort of precipitated the move for Donald, and then also you. I think it uh, might have. I mean, Don, Don can answer that obviously, but, but uh, yeah, that was a, that man, I haven't thought about this in years, but yeah, there was a lot of, you know, if you were to Venn diagram this thing, Sandy and new world, <laughs> there's that sweet spot right in the middle mm -hmm. where there was a lot of stuff happening together. Sure. Um, because everybody, you know, back then uh, it was all foreign financing and my God, I can remember one, one day or maybe even a week, Sandy was getting ready for me fed, which mm -hmm. is an acronym that stands for, maybe Milan something film something I don't even film, know yeah. anymore but right. it was all international sales mm -hmm. back then it was all smoke and mirrors and so we were putting these we had the whole hallway upstairs just lined up with these uh um uh packets uh full of all of Sandy's sales materials so mm -hmm. you know Xerox machine is running 24 hours a day we're getting pictures in we're typing up stuff and we're putting all these packages together for this whole film slate that Sandy was putting together and uh, packaging that up in boxes and then mailing it off to MeFed so he could hand it out to potential buyers. But yeah, anyway, sorry to interrupt. That, what was the question? No, that was no. That's how a <laughs> lot of the businesses were going at the time. Like uh, 
uh, Empire or Full Moon, eventually Full Moon. That's how they were doing it. That's how Canon did everything. They would always mm -hmm. sell everything. They go out with their posters and their packets about this is the movie we have. They'd sell the rights and then they come back and actually put it all together. Exactly. Um, but Angel was a script that I believe Donald found at Sandy Howard. Sandy Howard Productions are still listed, even though that's, it was that sounds by right. New World Pictures. And so mm -hmm. that he, but he eventually brings that to New World with you and 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 yeah. in, in their in your new positions. So that mm -hmm. was really the first project that brought you there. And we've talked to some people about that were there for the transition. We talked to Tony Randall, who eventually was the head of post production, yeah, uh, and an executive there. But he actually stayed with Roger Corman. He was with Corman and, mm -hmm. and the new old New World. So you were actually there on day yeah. one going in the offices uh -huh. the old offices in uh san vicente uh right. that were abandoned by <laughs> the old guard what yeah. was that like what was it like to walk in there well i i'd been in the offices once before uh when i first moved out to la in 1982 uh i had like i don't know a thousand dollars in my pocket and all my little films in a little leather briefcase and um <laughs> i got on the <laughs> I got on the bus to go pay a call to uh, New World Pictures, Roger Corman's New World Pictures, which was on San Vicente Boulevard at the time, kind of tucked into this little two-story office building. So I looked at the the Thomas Guide, which is mm -hmm. how we used to get around in L.A. way back sure, then. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Big, I thick compendium. Mm -hmm. And I found San Vicente, and I sort of found the address, and I got on the bus. Well, there's two San Vicentes in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And so I rode the bus to the completely wrong one and oh. got off in the middle of nowhere and okay and anyway finally got my act together made it to the <laughs> office upstairs and and uh you know it was a going concern back then and i sat on the couch and talked to somebody for a minute i can't even remember they they hustled me out the door pretty fast but then yeah uh were you so, going to the office to uh to, to interview for some sort of job there or to... i no, i was cold calling i that's what i did when i got okay. here i just i just packed up my thing and um made a lot of trips to places and, and got mm -hmm. shown the door, but you know, <laughs> so, uh, and then I have a funny story about children of the corn uh, in that regard. So yeah, when, when uh, Roger and company had vacated and we took over his space, it was, it was as if a hurricane had gone through. I mean, desks were in corners <laughs> and paper clips all over the walls and the carpet looked like, you know, something out of an abattoir. It was just, it was just like, this. what happened in here? But yeah, we, we were there for, um, I don't know, a few weeks or a couple months or even longer. I'm not even sure how long we were there before we made the move to uh, uh, the other building in, in uh, Century City uh, right. and got like a real office, a whole right. floor. But um, it so was there uh, in, in Corman's offices when um, I was poking around in a back hallway and I opened up this, this closet door and uh, nobody's going to remember Fibber McGee and Molly, but I'm old enough to get the reference. And and it, it was a radio show that that big closet was full of shit. So, uh, and you'd hear every week the door would open and shit would fall out. So I opened this closet door and it was literally just jammed with whatever they felt like stuffing in there. And in there was a script for Children of the Corn, um, which had been commissioned by uh hal roach studios yes they were the um, owners of it at the time yeah right right and which and, we should say it was really their their bread and butter was children's shows at the time yeah um yeah they really but somehow they optioned this story from stephen king 
We're well, trying to get in that okay. lucrative corn industry. You know, there's a corn market. <laughs> yeah, exactly. People. They were confused people by children corn. and we're like, oh, this is a kid's you story. See that, the video you want to hear this corn Dakota, story real quick? Or, or is, there, is, there a, is there a track that we're on? Should I follow the track that we're on or how do you want to handle that? Because I have a great corn story for you. Please. Uh, yes, yeah, we'll go wherever. All right. Please ignore yeah. us. Yeah. We want to hear your. Oh my God, story. we're here to Please. listen to you. I don't know if you guys have an agenda bullshit. or what. Um, no, I, I. <laughs> it, it, we, we our agendas agenda. are always very loose. Very, <laughs> very loose. Okay. Yes. Good. We are the New World um, Pictures podcast. Our agenda <laughs> is incredibly loose. Yeah. I was actually out earlier today, just sharing the poster of your interview, trying to just. You know, draw up some interest before we <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Just pulling local um, high schools to see what we should call um, this episode. That's, you know? that's right, the new world way. <laughs> oh my god! So, uh, uh, back in high school, my dad would occasionally come home from the grocery store with whatever that month's men's magazine was, uh, much to the chagrin of my mother and uh, little David, me. Uh, would seek out these men's magazines, you know, when I could get my little hands on them. And um, in one of them uh, was a, a short story by this guy named Stephen King called Children of the Corn. And if you know King, he was, this is how he was making his living early on, was selling a lot of these stories to mm -hmm. to the, the skin mags. Mm -hmm. So I read this short story and it just, it, it was, it was terrifying, just knocked me out. I thought it was really, really great. And then subsequently, I'm still in high school, I think. And then The Shining comes out. Salem's Lot comes out. I'm reading these books and I'm thinking, you know, this guy's got a future. <laughs> um, and uh, so now I'm in college. I'm in Iowa. And I think it it's, might be sophomore year for me or maybe junior year. I'm not even sure. And in the local Iowa City paper, they had this little filler, this little blurb, which said that uh, MGM uh, was in production with Children of the Corn, starring Lance Kerwin. If you remember Lance Kerwin, he was actually in Lance, I think, was in Salem's Lot. He he played the kid okay. in it, I believe. Oh, right. um, okay, yeah. But uh, And also a TV show. He had a TV show called James at 15, which was kind of a big deal back then. But anyway, so Lance Kerwin was the star, and uh, MGM was shooting it, and it was going to be filming in Illinois. And I decided right then that I was going to drop out of school and I was going to go uh, visit the film set and um, see if I could get a job. So I couldn't find any information about the, the shoot or, or where or who or what. But uh, one of my professors in a, uh, a literature class I was taking was David Morell. And David Morell had written a little book called First Blood, which mm -hmm. got made into uh, several Rambo movies. And David was friends with that. Stephen King. So I said, look, would it be possible? I know this is a big ask, but could you give me Stephen King's address? I'd like to write him a letter and ask him if he could help me out. And he said, sure. So uh, <laughs> he gave me Stephen King's address. And I wrote Stephen King a letter and he quickly wrote back and said um, that the film had been uh, abandoned, that they weren't, they weren't making it anymore and it had been shut down. Oh, wow. So I thought, okay, fine. Then uh, I move out to L.A. Uh, and uh, I'm looking at the trades and I see that Hal Roach Studios has acquired the script for Children of the Corn. So I'm back on the bus with my little suitcase of films and um, I go pay a visit to Hal Roach Studios, knock on the door or walk in. It was early in the morning. The only person in the office was this young woman who was manning the desk. And... Um, I kind of talked my way in and she said, do you have an appointment? And I said, no, but I'd like to talk about this and that. And she said, okay, cool. Sit, have a seat. We'll, you know, we'll, 
Anyway, uh, her boss came in, whose name I conveniently forgot because he was not very nice to me. And um, <laughs> when he saw me sitting there and learned what I was about, uh, you know, young kids showing up on his doorstep, I was I was shown the door again and I was basically kicked out. And so that was the end of that. And then um, a couple of years later, the script shows up in a closet. And I thought, wow. okay, I, I got to... I got to run with this. So I this took the script home the and read it. They're following you. They're yeah. literally Yeah, exactly you. right. So I read the script and thought it was pretty good. It was a pretty good adaptation of the story. And based on what we'd been doing at New World and also at Sandy's and having worked with coverage and budgeting and all that kind of stuff, I went to Don uh, Borchers, who was my boss at the time, and, and said something, you know, flippant like... Uh, you know, we could shoot this in an Iowa cornfield in about a week for 50 cents. And I'm not kidding. It's like, just take a look at this. And he looked at it. And I think, I think the dead zone was out by now. And Christine was probably in production. And there were all these Stephen King movies coming out. And um, Don read it and then took it down the hall to the bosses down there. And I want to say like by that evening, we were in production. It just wow. it, it happened really really fast. Um, no, actually, I, I've got a couple of cameos in it, so I'm I'm a, I'm an extra in some of those. Scenes. Oh really? What? Oh really? Yeah. If you we did a we did a three day uh, after they got back from Iowa, and it was oh, like I think right, they spent right. like four okay. or five weeks there. Oh, here's a funny story. Don <laughs> Don may uh, second the story, but so we had the script, and it was written by. I know his last name is Goldsmith. George, George Goldsmith is the so that's thank the you, script. Thank you. Now the Stephen when, when Hal Roach initially when they initially optioned it, Stephen King did the adaptation. That's yeah. the production that I don't think went on. Yeah. Then they got George Goldsmith because I think he was a friend of somebody at Hal Roach Studios. Okay. So they brought him on board to rewrite, and I think that's the draft that you guys got. That's the draft I got. Yeah. So he, we he got is George, the, the writer for the. For he the is. Whole, he's credited. Yeah. And he's, so and we he got George back set for the film. So we got. Yes, exactly. We got George back into the mix and uh, Fritz Kirsch, the director and his partner. Um, oh, so long ago. I can't remember his name, um, but uh, Fritz and his partner had gone out to uh, Iowa to do some location scouting and um, they were on their way back. And Don and George and I, and I, I know there were some other people in the room. We were at Don's house and we had the script all over the floor, different pages. And we were literally uh, rewriting with scissors. We were cutting script pages and gluing, taping things together. So old school. Mm -hmm. And the script was basically in like a thousand little pieces all over Don's floor. And we're moving things around. Fritz and his partner have just come back, to, just back from the airport. They walk into Don's living room and they say, we got a problem. And the problem is they start harvesting the corn in two weeks or something. I mean, it was ridiculous. Yeah, right. So literally the script was just like, oh, okay. And we put the script all together and, and off they went because we were kind of done at that point. I think they bought, they bought a farmer's acreage uh, to hold on to the corn for as okay. long as possible, even though uh, all the corn around there was being uh, harvested. But um, yeah, we had, a, we had a few acres to play with. They get back to LA and it's time to do some pickup shots. And um, the movie stars Peter Horton and Linda Hamilton, as we know. And this was one of Linda's, I think, first, mm -hmm. like not, not her first job, certainly. I think she'd done a turn on Hill Street Blues at this point, which was, I think it kind of broke her out. Um, it was, a, it was a, a good story for her. Um, I believe she was in a New World movie called Tag the Assassination Game. Oh my God, I didn't know that. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, that's in 1982. Oh, wow. 
So okay. and then and then she does this, but she yeah, she has yet to truly break out, as we yeah. all know. Okay. Well, pre-terminated. Yeah. So we're we're three days in this warehouse in downtown LA, and and we've taken every corner of the warehouse and we've made little sets for pickups. We've made a, a like an old blacksmith shop or or something, and and little like an old barn over here, and and we brought in some corn and we made like a uh, twelve foot by twelve foot little patch of corn and. So there's a sequence in the film where Peter Horton is running to the corn and the corn attacks him and it wraps around his legs at some point. Those are my legs. And, oh, and then so there's, nice. uh, yeah, there's another moment where the monster is attacking and you see some guy running, some kid that should be running from the left side and hide behind a hay bale. That's me. But <laughs> wow. I'm there for three days and I'm getting to know Linda and I'm developing a little crush. I, I just think she's great. She's really funny and and just and really a good sport about this whole deal. I mean, she was up on a, a crucifix with corn yeah. stalks stuck there for a while. <laughs> so it's the end of the three days, and and um, I get asked to drive Linda home. Uh, she's got a place in Venice, which is pretty far from downtown, so it's a long drive in my crappy little Volkswagen that I had at the time. So we're making conversation and I'm trying not to be a total nerd and, and she's very sweet, very nice to me. And, and she's still wearing actually her costume. I think she owned it. I mean, that's, that's how it was this ratty, <laughs> dirty shirt she had on and, and horrible little, you know, tattered shorts, khaki shorts, I think. But uh, so, you know, we're making conversation we're pulling up to her place in Venice. And I, I said, um, so uh, what do you got coming up? You got anything going on? I mean, anything, anything new? And, and she said, yeah, I just, um, I read for this. It's another damsel in distress thing. I read. Do you know who? Do you know who this guy is? This bodybuilder guy, Arnold uh, Schwarzen, uh, Schwar uh And I said Schwarzenegger. And she said, Yeah, yeah. I said, What is it? And she goes, He plays a robot. He like chases me around, and tries to kill me. And I said, Oh, uh, well, good luck with that. And she said, Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. And she gets out of the car. It was so bizarre. And then you know, like a year later, I'm in the theater watching Terminator and going, Oh my right. God. You know, <laughs> really amazing. Wow, really amazing. Anyway, that's my porn story. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. Uh, great. That is amazing. That is great. Now, it's when fun. you are going into New World and you're finding the script, you have Angel that you guys are clearly doing. Are there anything else that you guys have pushed forward at this point, or is it only? No, I, well, I don't know. Honestly, I'm sure there was a lot of things being pushed forward by by a lot of the you know people above me. I was. Oh God, I can tell you, I, I read so many scripts and, and, uh, oh, uh, and Lin Linda came back and did with Tommy Lee Jones, did, um, Fast Moon Rising. Rising. Black Moon Rising. Black Moon Rising. Yes. Right. The car. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, we did an episode on that, that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I can't honestly remember script. what else we were. Harley Coke. I can't remember what we were doing back then. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's, there's a few movies, Suburbia, that there's a couple movies that are still being made. Oh, by yeah. Yeah. Penelope's movie. Yeah. But that's. Boys still, Next Door. So, yes, exactly. Uh, she's still making that one with Roger, at least uh, Suburbia. Mm -hmm. uh, they're playing with Fire, The Initiation, mm -hmm. Philadelphia Experiment, Chubb. Oh, my God. I had a great chance to work with the writer of that film not too long ago. Oh, yeah. um, uh, William Gray, I believe, is the one. Is he's yes, the one who wrote that's uh, it, Black Bill. Moon Rising? Correct. That's what I. Oh, was. that was Bill. Okay. Yeah, I got it. I believe. I, I believe so. You. Yes. He wrote the Changeling too, the George C. Scott um, uh, movie with his wife at the time. But uh, yeah, Philadelphia Experiment was mostly what I remember from that time period is is uh, trying to do my work, reading scripts and helping to do budgets, and then being called down to the screening room to watch dailies. And watching this kid 
kid named Robert Downey Jr. Uh, in Tough Turf, just improvising the heck out of stuff and cracking us all up every day uh, was just a treat to watch him work with James Bader too. Um, that was fun to watch those dailies. But Since you were at New World Pictures, it's such a very interesting time in their history, obviously transitioning from Roger Corman. Yeah. What was the atmosphere from a management perspective or an organization perspective? Like, uh, is this a lot of enthusiasm and excitement and we're going to take this to the next level or how, how, what was the environment at that time? Well, it was the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> I like where this is going. <laughs> and, uh, and there was, um, well, let's see, you, you know, you know how, you know, the story of the acquisition, right? You know what happened there with Larry Sloan and Harry Cuppen and that they bought it from, from, yeah, Roger they bought it Corman. from Roger. Yeah, they were uh, they were lawyers. They were lawyers, and and um, they had I think represented uh, Gary Coleman, I believe. Gary and, Coleman, and he had right. done Jim, a movie called uh, Jimmy the Kid, I believe. Yep, yep. They had decided, as I understand it, they had decided that they wanted to they wanted to run a studio, and and so Avco Embassy, uh, I think, had folded by this time, and so Harry and Larry kind of raided the Avco Embassy executive pool. And they brought in Bob Ramey and, and Paul Almond and, um, oh, my God, all these names are falling out of my head right now. But a lot of the EFCO embassy executives Rod, came over. Roger Burledge. Thank you. Thank you, Roger Burledge. Burledge. Mm -hmm. And and Don uh, also had EFCO embassy experience. Um, he was there for a little bit, too, prior to his Sandy Howard right. uh, experience. So they had uh, stocked the executive offices with a lot of guys who knew their stuff about, mm -hmm. you know, how to make these kinds of movies, B-movies, solid B-movies and hits and things. And and so that was the, that was kind of the mandate. It was, uh, I have to tell you, I, I, when I got the job and I was working with Don, uh, initially for me personally, it was very exciting because of the whole corn kind of experience. It, yeah. it felt very, it felt very beyond our control to me. Very mm -hmm. kind of, hey, my dad has a barn, my mom can make costumes. And then, and then when it sort of transitioned into, you know, uh, what it became, it, it started to sort of layer up with, with a lot of gatekeepers and a lot of wheeling and dealing uh, with financiers and foreign sales and, you know, ancillary sales and videotape and all that. And, and uh, it just, it started to become less interesting to me because mm -hmm. I was, I was sort of moving away. I was a development executive and I really didn't know what I was doing uh, in, in the beginning. And I, not sure I ever knew until the very end, but um, <laughs> uh, when I started developing my own material and, and eventually right, right. got out of there, but uh, it was busy. It was intense. It was, uh, boy, I wish, I wish we were sitting alone in a bar. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's all you got to say. That's all you got to yeah, say. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, no, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I bet it was. Um, so, 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 what did you do in your day to day as as a development executive? You didn't know what you were uh, doing. So, what did you do? Well, I did kind of know what I was doing. Um, I'm reading a lot of right. scripts. I'm writing a lot of coverage. Okay. Um, I'm working with this uh, software program called Lotus One Two Three. Okay. Yeah. And I'm uh, I'm making budget templates, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, budgets up until that point had been done literally big sheets of paper and a, a calculator, you know, mm -hmm. you're ching, 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 and you're stapling the tape to the, to the page. And this was a time where everything was kind of beginning to shift. And, and so, you know, I've got an IBM PC in my office and I'm uh, working with it, it. It was basically 
Stone Age, uh, Stone Age Excel. Yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> right. trying to figure out these, right. these templates and everything. I had to use I had just this in college, so I remember. Oh, oh, yeah, it was horrible. a beast of a it was beast it was. of software when it, it, when totally. Excel came out. It was like a whole new world. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And 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 so we're we're doing that. We're making budgets. We're rewriting budgets. We're um, I uh, I had actually pitched a couple ideas down the hall to the bosses, Jonathan Axelrod specifically, and uh, two of them. Um, we got assigned, we got, we got to assign writers to. So I'm watching, I'm watching MTV one night and they've got a, a contest where you could win a weekend with Van Halen or something. And I'm sitting with my roommate at the time. And I, you know, first thought theater, I, I said, uh, God, what if like a minister's kid from Iowa won the weekend with Van Halen? Wouldn't that be funny? Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and then I pitched that down the hall the next morning and, and we got that assigned. Um, do you remember Soul Man? Yes. 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 Yeah. It yeah. didn't become better, Soul Man, better. did it? <laughs> no, it didn't become Soul Man, but but Soul Man was somehow mixed into that somehow. I don't know mm. what the what the connection was. But there was one movie that I pitched down the hall and we assigned a writer to that eventually became Ernest Saves Christmas of all things. Wow. Um Joe Ackerman was the development executive there. And I think when he left New World, I think he left with he was given some scripts. Mm -hmm. uh, that he had shepherded, and and I think that was one of them. So that movie was made and released by by someone else. But really, it was just day to day uh, paper shuffling, putting together calendars, you know, lists of where projects were at certain times, uh, who the directors were, who the writers were, when the scripts were coming in, what the budgets were, what the budgets were, you know, blowing up to be. Sure. Um, and so we have, you know, I want to say Monday morning staff meetings, but I'm not even sure what day they were on, where we'd all come into this big room and sit around a big table and have to report. So, you know, I would spend my uh, whatever weekend or Friday before that just assembling all this gack uh, to come in and, you know, David, what do you got for us? And then I would just launch for 20 minutes about, well, this, that, and the other, and that, and the other, and this, and that. And it was a lot of stuff that I, I just found not that interesting mm -hmm. because it was, again, it was, it was not the nuts and bolts kind of production stuff that I wanted to be doing. It was right. all behind the scenes and backstage maneuverings. And it was pretty capricious too, because you could, you could come across a script that you really liked and, you know, somebody would say, Oh yeah, we're going to do that. And then on, on Monday and then on Friday, no, that script is dead. And you're what? Um, mm -hmm. So uh, there was a lot of that. Mm -hmm. And then there was a lot of stuff where, you know, scripts would come in that were uh, just frankly, not that good. And yet they were being made or deals were being closed. And, and, you know, that's when I learned pretty quickly that it, the quality of the material really didn't matter. Mm. Uh, so much as, as you know, who could get paid and how could we pay for this without using right. our own money? Right. Kind of stuff. And you were, so. and you were pitching. Was that more exciting for you to kind of try to pitch ideas? And Yeah, um, it was because back to Beyond Our Control, uh, where everything started, we would have writers meetings. Dave Williams, uh, the, the lead advisor, uh, the creator of the show, would uh, invite, you know, uh, various uh, students to to his house and we would spend uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday nights uh, writing. And basically that was, it was my introduction to a writer's room before I ever knew what one was. And we're all sitting around his living room and we're talking about ideas and concepts and, um, you know, how do we do this and that? And and we have certain, you know, we got like 27 or 22, whatever the time was, minutes to fill. And, and so big bits, small bits, commercial parodies, that kind of stuff. And, and that process, I, I just, I loved just, that sort of 
creativity. And so being able to go down the hall and, and, you know, talk to them about new ideas or, or something was, yeah, that, that was fun. Were you also trying to pitch yourself uh, potentially as a, as a writer to rewrite some of the scripts that you had? Yes, uh, I was, I was working with writers and, and, and doing script notes and, um, finding that I think what most executives or, or development people find or, or get frustrated with is as a, as a development person working for a studio, you are sort of carrying the studio's water. You, 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 you know what they want and you know the kind of product they're trying to make. And so you have to funnel that in to your own sense of, of what you think works and, and what's creative. And so I'm sitting with writers and, and, and again, I'm very young and very arrogant and I didn't know a whole lot, but I'm learning on the job and I'm reading these scripts and I've read a ton of scripts by this point. So I'm sort of seeing how this kind of all goes together, at least for a certain, for a certain genre, you know, a B movie kind of mm-hmm, frame. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, in working with writers, I, I, and, and, and breaking down these stories with them, I, you know, the concept of fresh eyes, when, when, when a writer has been working on something for a while, they tend to get locked into a, a road or they, it's hard to see different things. And so I would come in and, and just have, you know, an outside view or a take and not necessarily write, but just, just trying to push the story into a different, hopefully better direction. And many, many times, and, you know, rightly so, I'd pitch my ideas and, and they would not be, uh, you know, it's a, it's a note from the executive to which the writer goes, no. And uh, thank you. And, you know, they do what they want. But I found that whether my idea sucked or not, Mm -hmm. I found that process frustrating. So, yes, uh, going down the hall and pitching stuff, uh, it was very hard. They saw me in a certain position in that job. And and it was very hard to break out of that position. Yeah. um, Yeah. Because they, you know, I, I, I fit. I was that cog in that particular machine at that time. And uh, when when I got shot down a couple times on on you know trying to take over a project, it was it was pretty definite. So mm. I stopped doing that until I pitched Adventures in Babysitting, which I didn't know the title at the time. But I was sitting in the office and I, I'd uh, gotten a hold of the script for Ferris Bueller's Day Off hmm. and uh, read that and in like an hour and thought it was an amazing script, mainly because it didn't have any structure. It was yeah. just a series of events, mm-hmm. which which cumulatively cumulatively added up to an experience. Right, and it was it was different than than the kind of structure I had been familiar with, and then also had seen I think either that week or earlier, uh, Scorsese's uh, After Hours uh, with Griffin Dunn. Sure, and started thinking is there is there a way to do this to, to combine those two concepts and 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 make kind of a an action teen comedy somehow. <laughs> and that's what I pitched down the hall. I, I just basically said, you know, a babysitter gets stuck all night in Chicago with your kids and they have a series of adventures and it's very fun, very sexy and blah, blah, blah. And uh, uh, Jonathan Axelrod said, no, not for us, not for us. <laughs> wow. And I went, okay, I went, okay. And then, yeah, I went back to my office and and I think that night I, you know, stayed late and closed the door and started writing that, that script, just spec'd it cold and um had you know it kind of had a sense of, of the structure and and how it would go together in the first draft the first draft sucked i mean it was not good but it, what what it was was a proof of concept mm-hmm. right and and right. the concept worked enough to get a studio paramount to get a studio to option it and and then you know at that point i was able to quit my job at new world and i was off to the races and that's where my new world experience kind of ends i found out um 
I had an agent at the time. I got an agent uh, because of a previous script I'd written with a partner. Uh, got us a little tiny bit of heat that got us an agent at William Morris. And so when Babysitting went out, my agent uh, was trying to put the deal together. I think this was like on a Monday or a Tuesday. And um, I found out that on the next Monday, I was going to be fired from New World. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I was desperately hoping that the deal would close by Friday. <laughs> sure. So I could not be fired on Monday. <laughs> um, and sure. by the way, they were they were right to fire me. I had I had sort of there's this phrase going around now called quiet quitting, yes. which, as we all know, those of us who've been working for a while, that's not anything new. Um, <laughs> it just now has a term. Uh, it just, right. right. It, yeah, now it has, has like a, a cool. Yeah, like exactly. Cool. So cool that's kind of what I've been yeah. doing for like the last six or seven months at New World. I've been quiet quitting and, mm -hmm. and I think they knew it. God, you invented it, Simpkins. I knew it. <laughs> you invented it. Yeah. No. Here no, first, I, folks. I did not invent it. No. Um, that's amazing um, that, you, uh, that you pitched it. And Jonathan Axelrod, from what I understand, particularly when we talked about crimes of passion, he was oh, yeah. he was apparently an executive who was very much into trying to steer New World into doing sort of art films. And obviously, mm -hmm. I think everyone was pretty excited for Crimes of Passion just because of the prestige of the director and thinking yeah. that they were going to start to make these kinds of films. And yep. I wonder if that played any part in him saying no to... It might have. It, it might obviously have, yeah. Because every studio has, you know, has their their uh, their imprint, you know. Right, um, right. My kids, you know, when my kids see, you know, it's an A24 film. Is that right? A24? Is that the name of the studio? Oh, yeah. They're all over it because, mm -hmm. you know, that's the that's the kind of stuff they're liking to watch. So, And that, that's the thing, though, because I, I I was sort of when we talked to Tony Randall, I was talking to him about it because for me I, and when we talked about Crimes of Passion, I was like, what when are these other art films coming? Like, I mean, right. when you look down the slate of what follows Crimes of Passion, it, it seems like the new new world of which you were a part of that to yeah. me felt like where you start out really well with angel children of the corn, but where mm -hmm. you go from there seems like very random and seems very sort of cobbled together in terms of, well, we got this from there and we're going to make this and then we're throwing that out there. And it, I, I just asked, I, I asked Tony at the time, was there any, was there any sort of like, this is the kind of movie we're going to make? And he was like, no, not really. Yeah. I, I, I think that might have been part of my problem was was I I couldn't quite identify the target. Yeah. And and right. so I'm reading a lot of scripts and I'm liking certain scripts and, and you know, you, you try to make a little noise with them. But but the direction coming from the guys down the hall, guys and, and, and men and women down the hall uh, was always sort of I don't I wasn't privy to those conversations. So I don't know what was happening or what was being directed. But sure. I think that might have been part of my Part of my problem was I I didn't quite know what I was working for. Right. I could get into the I could get into the B movies and the horror stuff, all that kind of stuff. That was great. But uh, as as we as we started to shift into other uh, areas, yeah, that was wasn't quite sure where where we were or what we were doing. Right. So, because Angel and Children of the Corn again, the some of the first couple of movies that the New New World actually make, and also mm -hmm. two of the first really good successes. Um, and, and two both... very, very different movies. Is exactly my <laughs> yeah. point. There are two very different yeah. films, even though they both start their own little franchises. Yeah. Uh, but right. they're two very different kinds of films. So you're trying to figure out, okay, we do Angel here and Children of the Corn here. What else do you, do? I mean, where else do you go? And then you're throwing out 
as we mentioned earlier, Hambone and Hilly. And then you're yeah, they're playing with fire and the Philadelphia experiment and Chud and bad manners and night patrol and tough turf and you're like uh-huh. what what night patrol uh-huh. oh, what boy. are we doing uh, yeah. what what is happening <laughs> yeah. here it, yeah I, it was it was it was a little um scattered were, um, you were there for but, night but, patrol were you not were, were you working for new world at the time i you know i may have been uh i i honestly can't remember i remember writing in the elevator with jeff goldblum for transylvania six five thousand mm-hmm. yes um yes. when that thing was going down again odd another um, yeah again the, the the we've just made you know crimes of passion and mm-hmm. now we're making transylvania six five thousand they're making uh black moon rising making yeah. contact as an acquisition from germany uh-huh knights of the city house i mean, I mean uh-huh. godzilla 1985 yeah. what is what the stuff well we, you know, one day we had uh, we had this little movie come in that was looking for distribution done by these two brothers. You know, we're, we're invited to the screening room to watch this film. And I go in and I sit down and and the movie starts on spooling. And I'm going, oh, that's oh, that's that guy from Blade Runner. That's M.M. at Walsh. And what I'm watching is Blood Simple. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, this yeah. movie is it, it looks really cheap. Wow. But but it was really effective, mm-hmm. and um, and we passed on it. We didn't. Uh, we chose not to distribute it. New World and, didn't, and didn't. New World could have no. distributed. Blood New, yeah, New World had a shot. As I understand oh. it, New World had a shot. It had come in uh, to be picked crap. up to be distributed. Exactly. And uh, you know, they, I I honestly don't know if there was anybody note in the screening room with me at the time wow. watching that movie. Really? I know there were some other people in there, but. At a certain point, I, I, I began to feel that, um, and I'm really going to be speaking out of turn here because this is only coming from my experience. Mm-hmm. And I, again, I don't know what kind of pressures um, sure, sure. Harry and Larry and Jonathan and all those guys were under. Of course. Um, but, uh, but at a certain point, it began to feel like they, they kind of enjoyed running the candy store more than they enjoyed the kind of candy they were selling. Mm. that makes any sense yeah, yeah it does and totally. and so it, it i think that's when i kind of lost interest um the, the only thing that also backs that up is the slate of films that they would release yeah. because it all feels like yeah. what are you doing guys yeah 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 it was throwing a lot of stuff at the wall yeah like um crushing a reese's but... peanut butter cup followed by a pack of neko wafers you know you're just like <laughs> what are you doing um <laughs> Your palate like is insane. <laughs> so I have two questions, and one of them yeah. will be, a, I think, a very quick answer, and the other one may not, um, or they might both be, and we're just this will be over quick. Um, did you ever watch any of the Children of the Corn sequels? No. Um, I watched, uh, you know, Don Borchers uh, remade it. He went to Iowa um, yeah. with the script that he had written, and he directed it. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw that one, uh, but I but I haven't seen any of the others now. Mm-hmm. That reminds me. Don and, and I. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, uh, Don and I a few years ago were trying to remake uh, Children of the Corn. We were trying to do actually uh, a sequel, uh, which was set a decade or two after the events uh, in that small town in which it had spread uh, the cult and the mania had spread nationwide. And um, we were uh, building this sort of big mythic kind of story. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we had a couple of pitch meetings. We pitched to a few places, but um, uh, and it was a big it was a big story. But but nobody wanted to pick it up. So mm, anyway. I had read an interview with Donald Borchers talking about he was this is about about the time that he was make, doing the remake, and he was mm-hmm. talking about you two getting together to make it into a series. Is that, that was it? Is that was that okay? Yep, that was How, that. So did that it, that never got close to taking off? No, just... uh, you know Don and I had had worked out a pilot idea and, and then, you know, the, the Bible, uh, to sort of, you know, uh, pitch where the show goes and what the theme of it was, but, um, we just couldn't get anybody interested. Don has since spec'd a screenplay on his own, which, which did carry that story forward. And he's been shopping that around for a while, mm. but I don't think you can get much traction on it. I, I really do hope you get to talk to Don because he has tenaciously worked out the rights situation on children of the corn because, after New World ended and Larry Cuppin took the rights, um, there was a, a whole really labyrinthine chain of title with that, with Children of the Corn. And Don was uh, worked diligently to, to extricate that and secure that for himself, which he did, I think, to some extent. I don't know. It, it, it's a, it's a, a shadowy uh, uh, topic, uh, but Don Don can uh, can Miasma definitely explain of, that. Of, of, uh, oh my god! So you leave New World Pictures, uh, you make Adventures in Babysitting. Which little backstory? Uh, my wife, for the most part, rolls her eyes at this podcast and the things that we talk about. She's seen a lot of these movies. She's like, "You're spending a lot of time on these. I don't don't really know why." When I told her <clears> that we were having this conversation tonight, Adventures in Babysitting. Her words is top five movies that shaped my whole upbringing. So, oh, like to you. her, thank it you. Thank is her for me. an incredibly like special movie to her. So she was even like, "Can I? Can I just come on this? Can I come on the podcast just for a couple <laughs> minutes?" Um, uh, but she went thank to bed. <laughs> so, uh, I thought she was gonna pop up and be like, just, <laughs> and here she is. Um, she's uh, been hiding under this desk this whole time, <laughs> waiting for me to ask this question. Um, but my question is, after that gets made, and you mm-hmm. know, it has the, the acclaim that it has, and it, it, it I mean, I, I saw it in the theaters, at, so it's all my friends. I mean, it was one of those movies that everybody saw, at least mm-hmm. in, in my friend's set. Sure. Did you ever run into anyone from New World Pictures that ha- made any mention of like, you know, we probably should have made that one? Yeah, Paul Almond, uh, he didn't say that. But what he said to me was, after the movie came out, I ran into him somewhere and he said, um, kind of jokingly, uh, I assume, he said, so let me get this straight. You wrote that in our offices on our equipment? And uh, I said, yeah. And he said, so technically we own a piece of it. And I was like, technically, yeah, but no. So I don't know. (laughs) He was joking. Uh, But but that's that. Speaking of old software, I wrote that thing on WordStar. Do you remember WordStar? Oh, yes. Oh, I do. Oh, oh my God. Terrible. The the amber, the amber text on a black screen, but but Mm -hmm. the top Mm -hmm. two thirds of the window were menu commands mm-hmm. and and like the bottom third was actually what you were writing and yep. i can't tell you how many times that thing crashed on me there's a filing cabinet probably in a dump somewhere now but there's a <laughs> filing cabinet that for many years bore my kick mark from i don't know one night about two in the morning uh i'd written maybe 30 pages and it right. crashed and i lost everything 
Uh, and uh, it was, yeah, it was horrible. Oof. But but I have to say, and I want to say this, um, and thank you to your wife. But but I but I want to be clear and, and give credit where credit is due. It was a very rough first draft, and and when it was finally optioned by Paramount, I was very very fortunate to for these producers, Linda Obst and and Deborah Hill, who took the project on with their intern, uh, a young woman named Stacy Sher, who mm-hmm. is now a producer of major note. Sure. Um, and so for a year, it was Linda, Deborah, and Stacy and I in a trailer on the Paramount lot, rewriting that script. Mm-hmm. And it was film school for me. It was it was so amazing and 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 uh, nurturing to have that kind of help and that kind of assistance and and just freedom to fuck up, uh, to yeah. to mm-hmm. to make mistakes and to have you know Deborah come down the hall and say you know laughing i can still hear her beads and her her wrist bracelets um you know and her sunglasses coming into my office and saying okay so you got a guy uh on page 32 who has one line it's like what does he say uh hey you kids and i'm like yeah and she goes i'm not paying for that i'm not gonna pay uh a whole you know get rid of that whatever you gotta do okay see ya boom she's off and so uh, okay all right (laughs) <laughs> um, so it was a lot of that, but it was, but it was really fun. And then Chris Columbus, we got Chris Columbus on board. Yeah. His, um, his debut as well t- as your, your first script, right, his right. first script, a lot of firsts for that one. Also it, the it first, was. the first production for Deborah Hill and in, in that production, the first exactly Hill right. and Opst uh, production as well. A lot yeah. of firsts for yeah. the actors as well. Exactly. Anthony Rapp, uh, that was, I think one of his first films, um, yep. if not his first. Uh, Keith um, Coogan, who does uh, Under the Boardwalk later for New World Pictures. That's his first. Yep. I think it's Elizabeth Shue's first lead. Yeah. Well, she did a movie called Link years before. Right. It was like a, right. a super smart chimp, I think. Mm-hmm. And she yep. was in that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Richard Franklin. Funny story. I believe. Uh, who? I, I believe that was. Wasn't that a Richard Franklin directed yes. film? Who did uh, Cycle uh, 2. And... I, I think it might have been. I think it might have yeah. been. God, that was um, the dough. Sorry. Yeah. I. I I, yeah. He can't Funny tell you any of my uh, friends' names, but just pulled that one right off the dome. <laughs> well, none of your friends. One of my best to be friends. fair, none of your friends were in Link. So to be fair, <laughs> that's fair. All is forgiven. <laughs> one of my best friends, uh, who's who's out here now, uh, Steve uh, Wyant, who was in Beyond Our Control with me as well. Uh, when I uh, first written the draft, and I gave it to him to read, he said, uh, "This is 1986, or might have been even 80, late 85 or early 86." But he said, "You know, be good in this is." Is Elizabeth Shue? Do you know who she is? And I was like, no. And so he quickly, you know, educated me about Elizabeth. And I was like, yeah, yeah, she sounds great. So then, cut to you know, x months later, and we are auditioning uh, actresses uh, for the role. And I kid you not, Elizabeth Shue might have been the second person to come in and read. And we had a mm-hmm. full day that day. We were seeing a lot of people. Elizabeth came in and read, and she left, and we we're all like that's it we're done i mean i do we need to go any further right and and so we did and you know we we respected everybody's time and we read everybody and there were a lot of great people um but uh at the end of the day we were still like no it's still elizabeth so by this time disney had picked up paramount put us in a turnaround and disney had picked up the, right. uh, the package and um, Jeff Katzenberg said, uh, yeah, that's all well and good, but no, you're not going to settle that quick. I want you to go to New York. I want you to go to Chicago. I want you to... Uh, so I didn't go, but Linda and Deborah and Chris and uh, Stacy might have too. I'm not sure. But they made the rounds 
And at the end of the day, uh, they all came back and said, no, it's it's Elizabeth. And so so she got the part. She got the part literally the moment she walked in the door, pretty much. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, uh, yeah, so that was that. I, I, um, I just recently rewatched it. Yeah. I'm going to about to say the same thing, Mark. I, I, I recently just rewatched it. And I, she's so good in it. I mean, and I know that, like, I believe Paramount put in turnaround because they really wanted Molly Ringwald for the part. And as much they as they started with Molly, Molly Ringwald, Ringwald. yeah, yeah we, we we started with Molly Ringwald, and and I don't think Molly was. I think she was done with those movies at this point. And, she had done um, so many. Uh, and, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they had they had two other stars at Paramount that they were were trying to get us to accept and, and perfectly fine actors, actresses, uh, but not quite right. They wanted Cher uh, for a few minutes to play the <laughs> interesting. And then interesting. They, and wow. Cher. Okay. Not and what then I they, thought you were going to say. Started, they started talking about Bette Midler. And um, huh. and we were like, uh, um, no, mm, hmm. no. Um, yeah. And then they put us into turnaround and, and then we ended up at Disney. Um, but wow. I have to share a story. Uh, I have to tell this publicly. I, I learned a really great lesson on, on babysitting and, and mostly it was to get out of my own way. So we're in the trailer and I'm doing the rewrite and Chris is on board. And um, Chris had said at one point when he was on, when he came on early, he said, you know, because this is set in Chicago, I really want to uh, explore Chicago blues. And I didn't have much experience with that. And, and um, I'm not sure he did either, but he just wanted to, to fill the, the movie with, you know, good music. And um, I thought, okay, that's great. And then a few days later, he comes down and says, uh, comes to my office and he says, you know, somewhere between this action beat and this sequence here, I'd love the kids to run into a blues bar and they have to sing a song. And my first reaction was, what? No, this is, <laughs> no, this is an action sequence. What are we talking about? They're going to run into a bar and start singing a song? Um, I, I don't even know how to approach that. I, I'm not sure what that's about, really. Mm -hmm. How does that work? And he goes, I, I don't know, figure it out. So he goes off to do what he's doing. And a week goes by, and he comes by and he says, uh, so do you have that scene yet? Do you have the, the blues bar scene? And I said, Chris, we're in the hallway now. And um, and I've been trying to figure this thing out, and it's getting a little hot and uh, for me. And I'm, I'm like, I, look, I just, I, I don't know, dude. I just, I don't know really what the scene's about, and um, I, I'm, I'm not really sure how to do it. And he's like, well, uh, I want it. I, I, I want to see that. I want it's fun, and I want to see it. I say, Chris, honestly, I don't even know. I mean, how, how does this work? What is it? A house rule that you can't leave the stage unless you sing the blues? And he looks at me and he says, Yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. And I went, oh, oh, okay, all right. And, and the, the, the lesson there was, you know, within reason, and especially in a movie like that, where it was kind of preposterous, you can create your own universe, and that universe has mm -hmm. its own rules. And mm -hmm. in this particular moment, in that blues bar, those were the rules. And the fact that the rules were so baffling to the kids from suburbia made it even funnier. And, yeah. and so once I, I was able to just go, okay, I get it. Then it just like, blah, then it was done. You know, then it was, it, it all made sense. But um, I, 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 uh, I, I want to share, or at least uh, um, give Chris the credit for that. He, he really pushed that on me and he was right to do it. It was a, it was a, great, a great scene and it's, and it's the scene, scene most people remember. Yeah. Yeah. It was wow. fun. That's great. I was, uh, I was there on the day when they, uh, I was there on the day when they played that, uh, when we had playback 
in this blues bar and there's Albert Collins on stage and, and everybody in the audience. And, uh, it was a great day, uh, just to see the kids up there, but they'd already recorded the song, uh, at a soundstage in in Disney, uh, on Disney studios. I believe it was on the lot there at Disney. So it was all playback for them. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was a really fun day. Well, that's great. Wow. I, I just had my own selfish little comment here and I think Ryan, you'll, you'll join in with me. Uh, the fact that the Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. was not picked up for a second season is one of the biggest tragedies of my of my uh, I, teenage I years. Yeah, <laughs> all all three of us are, are that was, agreed on that one. That was a chef's kiss series yeah. for me. Yeah, <laughs> that was a riot to work on. Again, uh, so so here's 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 the brief Simpkins story. So so babysitting comes out and. For maybe uh, a week, I'm kind of flavor of the week, and uh, I'm I'm taking a lot of meetings, and people are offering me this and offering me that, and and Deborah and Linda and Chris and I are talking about a sequel, uh, adventures in X, adventures in honeymooning, adventures in car shopping, whatever the hell. I mean, we, we were we were literally thinking, can we can we take this concept and just move it? into these very sort of ubiquitous, everybody's done it kind of a situation and then spin it a little bit and make make some kind of comedy about it. And we circled that for a while. But what really happened was, was I, I kind of went back to, to, to college, not literally, but I spent five years a bit in the wilderness uh, doing a lot of rewrites on stuff on, on other material and optioning a couple or selling a couple of original ideas. But um, my career had pretty much stalled. And um, mm. I was uh, somehow or another, I don't know how this happened, but I got a deal, a development deal at Lorimar. Uh, it was Lorimar at the time. I don't think it's around anymore, uh, but, a, but a development deal. And so um, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And, and what I became fascinated with were these um, B-movie chapter serials. If you'd go to the video store, you could buy Rocket Men from the Moon or whatever mm-hmm. rented. And, you know, it's like five tapes in a box and you'd watch these 1930s, 1940s serials. And I decided that I was going to pitch a series about a, a movie studio in the 1940s in Hollywood that was on its last legs and they were trying to make a B-movie serial to make their money back or somehow. And so it was going to be a, a behind the scenes comedy drama about this studio and this movie they were making. And... Um, so I did a ton of research and I think I pitched it a couple places and everybody was like, what are you talking about? And then who cares and whatever. <laughs> so then I got this phone call. Um, the two producers at Warner brothers were, were meeting with writers. Um, and I, somebody uh, had gotten a script to their development person. who was a good friend of mine, Susan Avalone. And Susan was working for them at the time. And Susan had brought me in uh, to meet the guys, Jeffrey Bohm, who I knew from lethal weapon and Indiana, Indiana Jones three, um had written those and uh, lethal weapon two i believe or three somewhere jeffrey was in the sequel uh, business there for lethal weapon um and his partner at the time carlton hughes uh and carlton had come from i believe an executive position at a studio to be uh to work with uh, jeffrey and jeffrey was a feature writer trying to get into television and carlton knew television so they partnered up mm-hmm. so i came in to to talk to them and they and they said so what we want to do is this sort of multi-chaptery kind of B-movie serial Western about this guy. And I said, oh, well, and this is where luck meets opportunity, preparation meets opportunity or whatever the hell the phrase is. <laughs> yeah, sure. And I said, well, if you want to do a B-movie serial, here's what you need. And I just went, bah, and just threw up all this stuff. And and they were like, okay. 
um, here's the concept, here's the guy, here's the thing, come back with a pitch. And um, so I wrote up a, a treatment and got the gig and um, wrote the pilot and handed the pilot in. And uh, Carlton uh, said, thank you. Uh, we'll take it from here. Okay. And that's when I moved to Minneapolis because I had felt that I had um, sort of exhausted my, my adventures in babysitting credit at that point. Hmm. And if I was going to be a writer and I was kind of miserable in LA, I would go back to the Midwest where I was from and I would just get a house on a lake, which I did and um, didn't cost very much back then. And, and I would just write from there. Mm -hmm. And uh, what ultimately happened was, uh, as I understand it, was Jeffrey and Carlton had gone to work. Uh, they put my script in a drawer, essentially, and they went to work on other pitches. They were trying to do a reboot of 77 Sunset Strip and, and some other things. And um, Bob Goldblatt, who was uh, uh, one of the executives or big deal at Fox, I'm not sure what his role was at the time, but he had called in to talk to Jeffrey and Carlton and was on the phone with Susan, uh, who'd got me the interview. And in the conversation with Susan, he'd said, hey, by the way, did that um, that Simpkins script ever come in, that, that, that Briscoe thing? And she said, yeah, it did. And so he said, I'd like to read it. So she sent it over to them and um, he read it. And then he called up the guys and he said, uh, hey, whatever you're doing, stop it because we're going to make this. And uh, they were surprised and um, they said, okay. And uh, we started making it. What I'd written was a really, really big, uh, too big for television budgets. And so they went in and did um, really, really terrific work in consolidating and cutting things down and mm -hmm. uh, making it a, a, a shootable television uh, pilot. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so I, I come back from Minnesota. Uh, we, we, uh, we shoot the pilot, uh, which was great fun. Um, one of the best days on the set was um, watching Bruce Campbell on that rocket sled um, because that was a that was a full on practical effect. We had a, a gas burner in the back of it, and the the rocket the 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 hand car was motorized and had a throttle on it, so he could speed it up. Um, but that was a riot, and uh, yeah, so got that show, did that for a year. Uh, another great learning experience. Great staff. Uh, I was a co producer on the show. Um, but that was my introduction to uh, to television writing, and that was the closest back to beyond our control. That was the closest experience I'd had to that experience back then, because it was literally just dreaming up the most wild stuff. And yeah. this was steampunk before steampunk was a term. Totally right. Um, Show, yeah, and uh, so yeah, so it was it was it was great fun. And that was that was Jeffrey's. I think Jeffrey's real push was was to was to make that show feel like um, it was kind of out of time in a weird way. Mm -hmm. There had right. all these other aspects to it, but um, a really difficult show to produce. And uh, I think that was part of the reasons. Oh, and the other thing too was um, Fox was just starting off and they had these two shows that they were launching with that Friday night. One was ours, which Sandy Grushow, who was running Fox at the time said something like, uh, I'll eat my desk if this show doesn't work. Um, and then they had this other little thing, this little procedural, <laughs> little spooky procedural called the X-Files, which they had yeah. not a lot of faith in, apparently. And um, and then we all know how that turned out. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so that was that. But, Boy, yeah, that, that poor desk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that, yeah. I hope she somehow made it soft and easy to chew. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it's just such an interesting show, too, that it blends the genre. There's so many genres in it. 
that it's like a Western, but it's also kind of a comedy and there's sci-fi elements. And it's mm-hmm. like those chances just don't seem to happen as much anymore. Yeah. Like to roll the for a major network to roll the dice on a show like that. And Fox seemed to do it a lot, but then didn't back it up. So putting it on Friday was obviously a death knell. <laughs> it was a death knell. And and uh, we all knew it, too. And we were saddened by that. But, but you know, we were given a great shot to do what we thought was a great show. And we had a lot of fun. Um, and they kept they, they kept extending us. They they kept telling us, you know, okay, you're going to do 22 and done. And then it was like, can you do one more? Can you do two more? We need three more. Um, and, <laughs> and they just kept dragging it out. Um, Someone but, uh, did not yeah. want to eat their desk. So that was, <laughs> that, 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 that was, that was thing. <laughs> and so when that gets canceled, you go on and you, and you, you move on to spy game for ABC. Now, had you met Sam Raimi before, I'm going to call back to the children of the corn days when he was almost the director of children of the corn. Had you met? I didn't him- know that. Yeah. Sam Raimi was almost, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, Sam that's, Raimi, uh, Don Borchers went out to meet him, and and he had just done uh, Evil Dead. Uh huh. But Don did not feel he'd be ready to prep it in enough time uh, because I see. he I had see. prepped. He had taken twelve months or twelve weeks, sorry, to prep mm-hmm. the original Evil Dead, and apparently, Children of the Corn had a, had they had to start shooting in about six weeks. So yeah, he was because like, yeah, you know, the corn was being harvested. The corn is going to be dead. Yeah. Um, right. Between between Spy Game and Briscoe, the 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 link between those two shows is a is a very talented producer writer named John McNamara. John had come into Briscoe as a staff writer, and John is and was brilliant at that time. And um, when Briscoe folded, John uh, transitioned to uh, Lois and Clark, the mm-hmm. Superman show with mm-hmm. Terry Hatcher and Dean Cain, and John did one season of that. And then for season two, uh, they needed another writer in the room. So John had talked to Robert Singer, who was running the show, into hiring me. So I came on to Lois and Clark as a consulting producer and did that for a year. And then later, John went on to Spy Game. And again, through my connection with John, uh, I got the gig on that show as well. And And that's a show that that Sam and his brother Ivan and John created, correct? Yes, yes. Yeah, that was a that was a bit of an odd a duck that show. Uh, we we um, I think that our eyes were a little bigger than our stomachs at the time as to what we thought we could accomplish and mm-hmm. um, how we would do it. But clearly, we were inspired, as I think Sam and his brother were, by those kinds of swing in sixties spy shows at the time, and the gadgets and the gear and the the, the relationships and and just to do kind of a fun romp. Um, and I don't think it, well, obviously it was canceled pretty quickly, but um, it just had trouble. I think kind of finding its footing a little bit. And I, I, I don't quite know why, except, you know, I'll take the blame. Maybe it was my writing. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no. But yeah, it was, it, no, I know. It was, it was, a, I remember the writer's rooms on that show. The writer's room was, was, was kind of a, it was a tough room in that, in that we, we had a lot of characters that we had to service and, and, and a lot of like sort of mission impossible kind of plotty plots. Mm. And what sometimes happens in those shows and in writer's rooms, I think is, is that the, the, the plot moves. Um, I'm not saying that the plot moves as in it goes from here to there, but just the, the intricate sort of pacing of the plot, it can kind of swamp the story in a way and it can kind of swamp the characters. And I think that may have happened there a little bit. Mm. Um, 
but we had a good cast, I think, and and uh, and all our intentions were good. Uh, but mm-hmm. um, I think it was just I think it was a little more ambitious than ABC at the time was willing to uh, support. Sure, so. sure. But what did you get to in, work a little bit though with Sam Raimi at the time? Yeah, I did. Um, and what we all noticed about Sam, what we all noticed about Sam was it was like, hey, buddy. Uh, he never knew anybody's <laughs> names. Uh, so uh, I do that. I do that. that all the time. Oh yeah, I, I'm a I'm a big like, hey you, hey yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of that. Uh, he was Sam was busy on on uh, other projects at the time, um, so he would kind of helicopter in and helicopter out. Sure. And uh, and I know that that John was uh, was doing a lot of day to day conversations with Sam uh more than anybody but um no the lonely grunt writers down in the writers room were were kind of off on our own sam would come in from time to time and talk about his wants and desires and his view and and you know how they want to accomplish this and do that and you know it was all kind of big time director speak and you're very ambitious but uh kind of hard to pull off right and then he would take off in that helicopter and leave you guys to work it all out (laughs) right (laughs) so at this point you have you've moved back see you buddy (laughs) bye buddies see you buddies hey see you guys see you buddy see you buddy and you buddy see you buddies later (laughs) um so at this point you have um Mm -hmm. You've moved back to LA. Was it Lois and Clark and that that sort of uh, jump started more of your career in terms of writing for TV and producing and writing for TV? Yeah, I, I think it was. I think it was Briscoe mostly because um, I made okay, a lot good. of uh, I made a lot of friend uh, friend connections and work connections on Briscoe, and so uh, a lot of the of the, the the crew on that show, the writing team, uh, the writing room, uh, went off to other shows and other jobs, and and we all tended to start, you know we worked so well together. We just, we wanted to kind of keep that experience going. So if Brad Kern or John Worth or John McNamara or Tom Shehack, you know, we're, we're doing some show somewhere, one of us would get a phone call and, and, you know, we'd go off and do that show for a little while. But, uh, but yeah, that it was Briscoe to Lois to spy game that, yeah, that, that by then I was a TV writer and right. I love the pace of it. I love the room work. I love the collaboration and I just love you know, breaking story and thinking mm-hmm. up, you know, how do we, how do we create a, create a really, really difficult situation for our character to get out, to get out of. Sure. And, um, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, and you, you've done a ton of great TV. I would love to be able to talk with you about all of it, but to go through your massive career would just yeah. be a lot. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's just, it's a lot of stuff. Uh, and I know there's probably people would love to hear about Charmed and th- yeah. people want to hear about Angel. some of the stuff you did with uh, Warehouse 13 and some of the other stuff yeah. you did with yeah. uh, Joss Whedon and Angel, some of that stuff. But Oh, um, I got stories. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I am sure you do. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Um, I, I, I'm curious about the Dresden Files and uh, uh, Vengeance Unlimited. That's what I would be curious about. But, oh, okay. But that's just me. Go there. Yeah. But um, um, what do you want to know? <laughs> well, I'm not pissing. I mean... <laughs> I'm not pissing. That's me getting water. <laughs> I swear to you. Well, we'll have to trust you on that one. We'll have to trust you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, uh, just, just again, just two great concepts. How did you get? How did you get those? Uh, how did you sell those concepts? Uh, Dresden. Um... I was hired by Sci-Fi to come in and work with Robert Wolf and Hans, uh, Hans Beimler. Uh, they had Robert and, and Hans had already done the heavy lifting uh, in okay. terms of adapting uh, Butcher's Jim Butcher's books. 
And they had um, produced and shot a pilot that sci-fi, for whatever reason, uh, the executives at sci-fi in LA and New York were not quite happy with. And somehow I got the call to take a meeting, Mark Stern, to talk about coming in and, and, um, and show running uh, Dresden Files. Now, this is, this is kind of an awkward and, and tough situation because I, I've been in this position. I've been in both sides of this. Robert and, um, and Hans uh, were, for all intents and purposes, the showrunners and the executive producers. But they had been, uh, I guess, basically told that, you know, you're going to now let this Simpkins guy come in and uh, he's going to take your baby and he's going to do whatever uh, he wants to do with it based <laughs> on sci-fi's direction. Okay. Um, so um, I met with Robert, I met with Hans and, and um, I did my best to assure them that, you know, I... Uh, I was not coming in to be, you know, that guy, a hatchet man, that that I wanted to respect their uh, work and I wanted to respect their uh, their version of the story and how they saw the character. And and so we we sort of had a little um, gr- uh, spoken agreement, I think, uh, to, yes, listen to sci-fi and their desires, but but also to try to do the show that, that made sense for, for them and me and all that kind of stuff. So I was kind of put in that position between the studio and, and the original creators. What sci-fi I think was trying to do at that time was they were trying to do kind of a sexy supernatural two-hander with uh, the lead wizard and, and the female lead cop. And um, for whatever reason, chemistry or, or original foundational concept or something, it just wasn't quite, it just wasn't quite working. So we did our best, the material we had and, and um, with the source material and then the, the stories that we were writing. But but it just it was just kind of an odd uh, beast, and ultimately uh, was canceled. Again, very imaginative staff and and great production value, and uh, I think the actors did a great job. And it, it just it, it, it's sad. I was sad when it when it went down. Um, it, it's another blending so. of those genres, which you're sort of doing from back in, in Briscoe yeah. County, where you're just sort yeah. of and and again, I just think that's such a cool. That seems to be your thing is trying to see how can well, we. I don't know if it's my thing, but I definitely, I, 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 I sort of, I'm gra- I gravitate to those stories uh, mm. just because they're, they're, they're a bit of the familiar. Uh, so you, it's kind of a comfortable place to be, but then there's something new coming in, right. um, which hopefully is a little unexpected. The, the Warehouse 13 gig arrived after Dresden. I'd heard about Warehouse 13. I heard they had the script and I heard that they were, you know, having a little difficulty with it. And, um, Sorry if that was a really loud. You can edit that out, but um, <laughs> horrible. Uh, no, no, no. I'm going to keep that. I'm going to cut it into various parts of the entire podcast. Make a dramatic sip. A dramatic sip. So, so I'd heard about Warehouse 13 and and from my agent, and I and I was I was really kind of curious to get in on it, and I asked them if I could. I asked my reps, could you call them and and see if I can get in there because it sounds like a really cool idea, and uh, you know I was met with no, they're going in another direction. So fine. So I don't know what I was doing at the time, probably specking something or whatever. But lo and behold, a few months later, I get a phone call and it's, you know, they want to talk to you. So uh, I went in and knew Mark from Dresden. And Mark and I had a, a pretty good experience working on Dresden Files. And um, I think he liked me. I liked him. And and he's kind of a prickly sort. And he's a bit of a micromanager. But but that's only because he really cares about what the what the what the product was and the, the whole process. And um and I and I kind of enjoy that give and take. I kind of enjoy that that it's not arguments so much uh, as just kind of you know heated 
but friendly discussions. And I, I think good stuff can kind of come from that. So anyway, uh, met on, on Warehouse and um, read the script and liked a lot of, of the original. There were several drafts done by, by several different people. Uh, Brent Mote, who was the original um, writer on the project. I think the story was that Brent had come in and pitched to the executives this idea and the, and the warehouse, this is how the story was told to me. So Brent, if you're listening, I apologize if I got this wrong, <laughs> but that uh, the warehouse concept was actually a much smaller idea in this overall concept that Brent had. Sci-Fi said, we we don't like anything, but we like the warehouse. Can we just do a show about the warehouse? And and so Brent wrote a draft and then that draft went to Ron Moore, did a draft, and then uh, Jane Espenson did a draft. And um, so I had all those drafts in front of me and I'm I'm literally, I'm picking, you know, treasures from from these three scripts and and then sort of reassembling them and giving them a bit of sitting a them on the floor and, cutting them are you cutting them and uh, pretty much them on the floor? pretty much yeah. yeah pretty much <laughs> and then we had a writer strike happen i delivered the script mm. i had to deliver the script by midnight on sunday night because the writers were going on strike monday at 1201 so i'm up in my little loft where i was living at the time and i'm just for like five days straight i'm just like you know just writing at 11 59 or 12 o'clock whatever i hit send boom and the script goes off so we're on strike for i don't know how many months five months six months eight whatever the hell but i'm hearing through the grapevine that what sci-fi is trying to do is they're trying to frankenstein all these scripts together uh including mine and then they're gonna somehow get some other writer i don't know from where canada maybe uh to sort of smooth it all over and then we're gonna go shoot it Anyway, that all fell apart. Uh, the strike ends and I get the call and I get my notes and uh, I rewrite the pilot for the shooting draft. And then that's that's it. Uh, mm. Then we're off to the races. Yeah, that was a fun that was a fun gig. I was there two years and uh, and Jack Kenny came in. Actually, Jack Kenny came in in season one to uh, to run the show. That was a situation that I was talking about where I had come in to basically lord it over Robert and Hans on Dresden Files. And then Jack came in to lord it over on me on <laughs> Warehouse, um, which is fine because Jack's a friend of mine. But uh, yeah, I was there two years. And then I just felt like I'd, I'd kind of been doing genre stuff like that for a really long time. And yeah. um, I was just a little burnt out by it. And uh, and I was happy to, uh, uh, to say, see ya, and mm -hmm. let them go. They went on for another three more seasons, I think. Mm -hmm. or, yeah. I don't know. And it, we're, in any of this time you're working on all these shows, are you thinking about getting back into features or are you? Uh, well, yes, I am. Uh, in fact, one kind of came along, which uh, I think you guys have talked about or uh, on Twitter, you guys have been talking about, which is Alien Raiders. Right. Um, so I did a show for Fox called Freaky Links, which was originally called Fearsome. And the pilot was written by uh, David Goyer and uh, Greg Hale. And Greg Hale is part of the Blair Witch Gang. Uh, Greg okay, and Dan yes. Myrick and Ben Rock and um, Eduardo Sanchez. So Freaky Link, or Fearsome originally, and then they changed the title to Freaky Links. I came in as a co-exec on that, and that show was um, basically supernatural paranormal investigators with 20-somethings with handheld cameras. Ethan, yeah. uh, Ethan Embry uh, was yes, the lead. Yes, right. right. Um, so through Greg and working with so Greg. So you could get I a little revenge on, on, X, on X-Files. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but Greg introduced me to the other guys. I met Dan and and Dan and I, uh, Dan lived here at the time with his wife, Julia. And and he told me about this deal he had to do these kind of straight to video, uh, supernatural, you know, creepy movies. And he pitched me this concept. He called it Supermarket originally. 
Um, and, uh, and then it pitched me the idea and I was like, yeah, that sounds great. I think I, my kids, I, uh, I was married at the time and, um, my wife had just had twins. And so we had these little babies and, um, I wasn't doing, taking a job anywhere and cause I needed to stay home. And, and, um, so, uh, it was a perfect opportunity and he, he said, do you want to race it? Sure. So wrote a draft, uh, a couple drafts of that and then, um, handed it off. And then Julia came on. And did uh, a fantastic production rewrite because once they got into locations and stuff, things change as they do. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she improved the story, I think, quite a bit. And uh, so that was my last feature, which didn't actually it wasn't in theaters, but you know, straight to video. Right, right. Um, and uh, I actually just finished a spec feature, uh, which is with my agent right now, and going out next week. I think we'll see what happens. But uh, anyway, yeah, I would love so- to get back into features. The last two TV shows that you worked on, though, Powers and Woo Assassins. Yeah. Uh, Powers, I'm very familiar with the comic, and I was a reader of the comic. So how was it working on those two shows? Very Two very different shows, though, again, sort of genre blending as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And those two mm-hmm. shows. So how how was it working on those two shows? Um, Powers was interesting. I'm a huge fan of the boys and what Eric Kripke, right. Eric, yeah. I can't talk. Eric Kripke is doing with the boys right. is, is what we kind of wanted to do with powers, but we didn't know we could. Brian Michael Bendis had, had written the comic book and, and Brian was on staff with us. He was, he was one of the producers and he was in the writer's room with us. And that was, that was a treat uh, to have, have Brian there. He's so smart and um, knows his stuff really well. And, Powers was Powers was an interesting shoot. It, 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 I came in, in in season two, and season one had been run by a showrunner who, uh, as I understand it, and I could be wrong, but but uh, was not really um, well versed in in television production. Mm, and um, okay. I think that Sony or whoever the producers were at the time had hired him. He had a great pitch and uh, and sort of great ideas, but but once it kind of came time to 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 do the show to make the show. Things were, and I don't mean to cast dispersions because this is a hard goddamn job, and and uh, there's a lot of moving parts. And so, um, the original showrunner of, of Powers, uh, the first season, he was he was backed up by Remy Abishan, and um, Remy uh, eventually took over season two. And um, I got the gig actually because Remy knows John Worth, and I worked with John Worth on Briscoe County. So there was uh, a little wow. bit of a, you know, hey, this guy. And so, anyway, that'll happen. All um, roads lead back to Briscoe County. Totally. You know? All back to Briscoe. <laughs> in fact, Wu Assassins was run by John Worth, and and that's John brought me in to to Wu to mm-hmm. uh, to help with that. Um, but anyway, wow. it was it was a tough experience. We were we were uh, Sony was airing the show on the PlayStation Network, right? So nobody knew about it and, yeah. and nobody really watched it and they weren't giving us a lot of money. You know, we had big ideas and big plans, but it just, it just wasn't, wasn't coming together. And eventually uh, that went away. Woo Assassins. <laughs> that was interesting in that, in that. Um, so John had been brought in, John Worth had been brought in to take this idea, which had been sold uh, to, uh, to Netflix by a producer named Tony Krantz. Tony actually uh, was also part of the raw feed uh, situation with Dan and oh, those okay. guys. So for alien um, Raiders. So, exactly, exactly. So Tony is a producer, and he pitched this concept to Netflix, and they brought in jo- John Worth as a showrunner. And as John is assembling his his staff, you know, he he brings me in and says, "Look, we're going to do this sort of 
fantasy action uh, Chinese San Francisco based crime show with these, you know, magical elements. And and I'm thinking, okay, great. Again, up my alley, you know, uh, <laughs> weird sort of fantasy stuff, crime and whatever. And then one day John comes into the room and he says, I got this casting idea. Do you guys know who uh, Iko Uwes uh, is? And I said, yeah, from the raid and raid mm-hmm. two. And he goes, yeah. So John, John decides that, that he wants to make a run at, at, at uh, Eco to, uh, to cast him in the show. And um, we're like, great, do it. Fantastic. So we get him and, and this is the, the budget is limited on this series. And, and so what ends up kind of happening is that he comes in, Eco comes in with his whole crew and his stunt crew and, and, and the, the whole production just begins to sort of metastatize in a certain way. And, uh-huh. and, and money, money starts getting eaten up in special effects and wire rigs. And, mm-hmm. and um, if you've seen the series, uh, I think the last two or three episodes are shot in the woods because that's kind of all we could afford at the time. Because <laughs> uh, we just, again, a case of our eyes being a little bigger than our, our, mm-hmm. our stomachs. And, sure. uh, but still, uh, a great experience and a lot of fun. Uh, and, and by the way, uh, the, uh, the effects team and the stunt work, one of the best parts of that job was watching the fight rehearsals uh, on videotape. You know, we'd get the, the call from the stunt guys up in Canada and they'd say, we're, uh, go to your, look at this on Vimeo or wherever the hell it was, go look at this fight sequence. And we're like, beauty Christmas. Um, pretty amazing stuff, but, um, yeah. Now now when you're writing for that show, like, does it change once eco comes involved? Do you you have to like change where you were writing or? Well, uh, only in that the, the character changed, um, in that eco is, is, um, English is not his first language. And so we had to sort of restructure his character and some of the relationships that he had with the other characters to make his background. Right. Cause he's um, like part Indonesian and part Chinese. And so, right. 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 So you, you made that to make him yeah. more like his, his background. Yeah, right. And when you're writing like the fight scenes or writing for fight scenes, do you like just go and they fight? They fight. And I pretty much I back away and I'll let Eco and his team do take care of that stuff. Yeah. But honestly, the, 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 so the scripts team, are like 50 pages. You can just kind of like, you can the fight team brings us those scenes pretty much. I mean, oh, they, okay. They, okay. We know, we know that we've got a fight in a, in a car, uh, a car dealership or a car garage or whatever. Mm-hmm. And those guys have already, they've got the outline. They know where the story is going. So they then work that out and they come back to us. Oh, wow. And, and they say, so here's the sequence we're thinking of what works for you, what fits. And they've worked it out. So they've got these component sections that, you know, they can either pull or slot in to, you know, whatever, whatever. It's basically choreography. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. And then, you know, when they bring us this stuff and we're like, oh, yeah, we'll take two of those, one of those and three of those. And then we sort of, you know, put it in the script in a way. But um, Oh, really? So you, know you, you, you do get to pick and choose. I was going to make a joke. Like, you're like, you know what? I have some notes. Eco. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> like, you know, there's do, this... do you get to do you just insert it or do you get to actually say, let's let's try this or that from what you guys have come up with they the the stunt team they know their business backwards and okay. forwards. And okay so and so we you know it, it, it's it's always that old adage of you know hire people a lot smarter than you are sure um and and so when when they've got the floor and they're doing what they're doing we just step back and and let them go you know we rein them in if there's certain things happening that that don't work in story or plot or whatever we'll say no he actually can't die there because he's in the next show um i'm being facetious but uh you know there's a there's a little monitoring going on but but for the most part they they gave us some wonderful material uh to work with 
Uh, I did want to go back and note Aaron Lipstadt did direct a couple episodes of Powers, and Aaron Lipstadt started out as a production yep. assistant at New World Pictures, yep. and eventually directed Android for New World mm-hmm. Pictures, mm-hmm. and now has become a television director. So yeah. I don't know if you had any interaction with him, but I just wanted to point that I out. I did not. No, I did not have any interaction with him. Although I have a funny Aaron Lipstadt story with Android. Um, a friend of mine a couple of years ago had said, a much younger friend of mine had said uh, that she'd seen this movie on TV when she was a kid. And um, all she could remember was this scene of these two like robots or something having electricity between their fingers. And I went, oh, yeah, that's Android. <laughs> and um she's like what and uh and so i pulled it up and, and she was like how did you know that and i'm like I, yeah whatever it just sticks in your head so. yeah that movie does stick with you it, I, it, it does it really yeah. does it does stay with you for sure yeah yeah so i so i just wanted to i, I will probably throw a couple of last questions at you but uh sure i wonder do you have sometimes have ideas now that you're like man that would be a great sketch do you still like have sketch ideas come to you at this point, even though you're all now the time. thinking and you're no, just, all the time. Uh, what, yeah. Do you write them I up couldn't at think all? Of or... One right now. No, I don't have. No, no, no. no, no. I'm not. I'm not going to ask head. you to come up with one. Okay. But do you write them down or do anything with them, or do you just go, "Wow, that would have been a cool no. sketch to do"? No. Uh, you know the 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 BOC guys uh, and gals when they're out here, there there are no um, uh, beyond our control alums, uh, females who are, who are living out here right now that I can think of. I don't think so. We had some for a while, but they've all moved on to other things. And but at least a couple of months, um, every couple of months, Larry Karaszewski and Dan Waters and Steve Wyant and Chris Pickenpaw, another BOC guy, and uh, Circus, a guy named Circus Zalewski. <laughs> uh, who's a great character actor, will go to dinner. And it is, it's literally, we're 14 years old, sitting in Dave Williams' living room, and we're just cracking up and, and pitching the dumbest ideas and laughing our asses <laughs> off. But it's all very grotesque, I'm sure, for the for the wait staff to see us <laughs> old guys um, laughing like loons. Uh, but that's, you know, that's fun. And and um, it's hard not to not to sort of see things or notice things or what i mean you guys do it too you, you see whatever's going on in the news and you know it needs to be poked fun at but um, sure, w- sure what i'm so amazed by and and i'm right now i'm teaching um i'm teaching a class uh to film students here in los angeles they're they're visiting from the rochester institute of technology i'm chiding them a little bit because i'm amazed at um how many classic films they have not seen mm-hmm. and um uh, i know that when we were growing up, the chance to see these movies, these classic films was pretty rare. Yeah. You know, maybe on the late show, you might catch the birds or, or psycho or um, Casablanca or whatever, or, and then you get to college and then there's, you know, the film society there and, and you know, you're going to all that stuff. But right now there's just, there's so much to see um, so much content out there that, and, and I don't, I don't blame the students or begrudge them because it's just, you know, it's just hard uh, for them, I think, to kind of get their heads around the fact that, you know, at a certain point, whenever they started becoming aware of movies and television, you know, whatever's happening in their universe is, is it's their universe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I talk right. about Chinatown or, um, I don't know, whatever movie I'm talking about, um, and I get these blank stares, uh, it's a, it's a little, it's a little depressing. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like, guys, come on. There's, oh man. But honestly, I actually screened Chinatown for some of the students the other day. And, and 
gorgeous film, beautiful film. The pacing in that movie is so languid. It must. There's a scene in there where where Jack Nicholson is is got his little silk pajamas on. He's come back from a night of detecting, and he's brushing his teeth and going to bed. And then the phone rings, and uh, it's uh, Lieutenant Escobar telling him to uh, meet him at um, Ida Place's house. And, and I think your name is Ida Place. I probably got that wrong, but anyway. But it's like five minutes of watching him brush his teeth and walk to bed and lay yeah. down yeah. and not answer the phone. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm watching this movie. And I'm loving every second of it, and I'm looking at them, and you know, they're not. But it's like they're looking at their watches. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's yeah. It's a different pacing. A different pacing time. has changed, and you're you're right. It's so interesting because the the generations growing up now, when you have everything available to you, when you can stream it, there's a thing, and I mean, I'm guilty of it too. When you'll see it and you go like, okay, I'm going to put that on my watch list, and I'm going to see that at yeah. some point. But it, you then two years go by, and you're like, you know what? I still haven't seen that thing. I got to see it. Uh, but when no. you are looking at the t the schedule, and you're like, mm-hmm. it, it's coming to this theater. It's going to play yeah. one night. Or it's going to be on the late show and it's at 11 p.m. and there's mm-hmm. four networks. You see it now or you don't see it. And yeah, it, it, because it, you don't know when it's going to come back out. So, but now yeah. they can, oh, I'll, I'll catch it. I'll see it. It's around, you know, it's, I think you know, there was, it, and then there was even a middle ground too when we had video stores and sure, sure. renting a movie, even though that started sort of the, you know, the access had greatly improved at that point. But still, sure. you. I remember going to Hollywood Video and Blockbuster on a Friday night after work, and all the mm-hmm. movies I wanted to see were gone. They're all checked yeah. out. So then you're having to go through some of the uh, the other <laughs> aisles behind, right. you know, looking for like, okay, what are we going to watch tonight? But it was still, you, it was an event, and you couldn't yeah. just go home and just stream it. Yeah, like this was this was your night. Right. You had to take right. advantage of it. That, that, those end. are the nights when you come home with a new World Pictures movie. <laughs> exactly. exactly. That's when you're like, Chud is what's on the menu Everything tonight. I wanted is not in. So I'm Hannibal taking Android Humanoid home. underground dwellers. <laughs> well, you're like, I wanted to watch Children of the Corn, but it was out. So Deadly Harvest it is. <laughs> Close enough. Still Close in. enough. Yeah, still in there. Still in it's there. Harvesting, so. um, the other question, what, what, uh, Erica, uh, what was your you had a question you were telling me earlier that uh, you wanted to mention i'm just curious simkins if i may if i can call you simkins you at may. this point i feel like we've talked long enough that we're we're in nickname phase now right that's uh, all all my uh all my old school buddies call me simkins so yeah it's all good i'm just curious is there you know from your experience and your opinion is there a genre that you think is more challenging to write for than another because you have such varied experience as a writer do you think comedy is more challenging drama you know steampunk. sci-fi steampunk is oh, there one that's more challenging than, than it's the other, all to me it's all challenging uh honestly at all you know this is the, this is not anything new but every time i start something new whatever it might be and i'm looking at the blank screen and the cursor um it it's it's like I've never written before. It is a mm-hmm. it is a, a, a very daunting sort of somewhat upsetting experience where I think this should be easier by now, mm-hmm. um, but it but it's not. Uh, it it it, it every, everything has its unique challenges, um, and the other thing I would say is right now with with these with the film students I'm uh, I'm I'm teaching a class and then I'm also um, 
uh, I'm host. I'm, I'm doing an internship, so I have four students with me, and we are. The conceit is, or the concept is, is that we are in a de facto writer's room, and we are breaking a uh, a true crime story. And um, what we have landed on is this uh, this true crime story out of Chicago uh, in the 1940s. And uh, several books have been written about it, and some documentaries. And so they're doing a lot of research right now, and they are writing scenes and they are uh we're putting note cards together and we're starting to build episodes and um i have a writing partner on it and she'll be coming into town uh, in a couple of weeks she's out of town right now on some of the projects but the goal is is to get enough material together to get this thing shaped up enough so the students can pitch it to her um she knows what the idea is as an executive might know what an idea is generally sure uh, but she's not familiar with all the details and the ins and outs Mm -hmm. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is, is that it's all difficult and, and uh, it, 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 it gets easier as anything does when you get more familiar with the territory. Mm -hmm. And um, when we began this process, the students and I, it was overwhelming. There's three stories going on with three families all caught up in this, this nightmare that happens all three families from three different socioeconomic backgrounds and uh, experiences and and this this event brings them all together into this this sort of tragic collision and uh and so it, as we're working it through in the first couple of weeks we were like this is huge how do we get our heads around this and then it's just you know as they say bird by bird you know you just you just start to work it through and you get a handle on on who's doing what and the the main character begins to take shape and a character who we never even really thought twice about has suddenly entered the story as a uh, a major element and uh i'm kind of babbling at this point but but um <laughs> it's all it's all difficult uh yeah, in, until you yeah. kind of get in the middle of it and then right and right. then it, it kind of feels it feels manageable somehow that's not much of an answer to your question but uh honestly and let me say this too it doesn't matter, really matter to me what genre it is whether it's sci-fi or supernatural or this or that because it all comes down to and this is you've heard this a million times but it all comes down to the characters if, if the characters aren't working or the characters aren't there if the characters aren't relatable then who cares the 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 fantasy elements have to be grounded in my belief anyway in reality and i think this goes back to, to sorry to make this all about me but it it, it um <laughs> it kind of goes back to babysitting in a way and and, and what elizabeth shoe brought to that character as ridiculous and as preposterous as some of those situations were, that her character's attitude was struggling with the illogical situation that that character kept finding herself in. And that's where the comedy was coming from. Right. Uh, when when her, her expectations kept being, you know, knocked down by, by whatever new thing was coming her way. And um, uh, I was going somewhere with this. Oh, um, and so you know, you begin, hopefully you begin to care for that character. You get caught up in that character's struggle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, all they're trying to do in any kind of story is, is either, you know, get through it unscathed, get through it alive or, or get back home, you know, in, in, in whatever way. And it doesn't really matter what genre, what story, science fiction, whatever. I mean, you look at alien, um, all Sigourney Weaver's character wanted to do was in a sense, get off that ship, get out yeah. of that haunted house. And those are all situations we can relate to, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. how do I get out of this? Um, so anyway, that's my rant on that. Yeah. I think it, I think also if I'm hearing you right too, it also helps to write a good portion of it and entirely lose it and then have to start over again. And that <laughs> is always a helpful guide 
Too soon. Yeah. No. Too soon. Too soon. Too soon. Did I miss something? What happened? No, the, your WordStar software. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when your window oh, crash. Oh, yeah. That. You yes, got to write yes, about yes, 30 pages or so, lose it, and then have yeah. to start all over again. And that also helps yeah. because you've gotten uh, it in your. You in know your... what's weird? Um, you're absolutely right about that stuff. It's a horrible lesson, and I save constantly now. And my software now has, you know, the save every two minutes aspect, which I just do constantly. But. Um, uh, yeah, it was it was uh, it was a horrible lesson to learn, but it was very helpful. And the other thing too about you know, again, Dan or somebody has certainly told you this: writing is rewriting. And um, I never know when I'm starting a project or, or working on something if the elements or the story or the characters I'm working with are going to survive to the final draft, whatever the final draft is. Yeah, uh, the final draft is usually coming out of the editing room, and I'm not having a whole lot to do with it at that point. But but so many of these stories are in my early drafts, they're just, there's scaffolding, you know, sure. there's, I'm building a lot of scaffolding and there's something in the middle of that, which I kind of don't know yet. And then as it goes through another draft and another draft, you begin to peel that away and peel that away. And, and then you, you start to see what your central core is. And then once you kind of identify that and you hope it's the right central core. Yeah. That's, that's what you build on. And you got to lose, I just the, did that. you got to lose the, Hey kids, you got to lose that guy. You gotta lose that too. You kids. Yeah. <laughs> um, that actually that made it that actually made it into the movie. If you watch the movie, there's a scene where the kids are two two bits of pieces about babysitting, but this tickle me no end. Uh, when the kids are running through the, the subway station and they jump over the turnstile, there's a guy in the in the subway ticket booth who kind of leans out and goes, Hey you kids. <laughs> yep. Um, yep. Yep. That that is uh that's uh, Deborah Hill's dad. Oh. <laughs> oh. So you yeah. you got to save the line by saying Deborah. I know you wanted me to lose this line, but what if it's your dad? No, <laughs> that happened much, much later. Um, I think that happened later. And then there's another moment. I, I, this was actually on a Twitter feed uh, a couple months ago. But when the kids first uh, enter the frat house and uh, Southside Johnny is singing a song, Freeway to Your Love, I think, or something. I can't remember the name of it. But there's a shot from uh, Elizabeth Shue's point of view where she's looking at the, the kids dancing. And as the camera pans if you are eagle-eyed enough, you will see Lisa Shu dancing in the crowd. Um, <laughs> that was the last shot of the night. It was about four in the morning. And we'd been hearing that playback for six hours mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> off and on while we're doing sure. close-ups and masters and stuff. And uh, Lisa said, uh, I got to dance. I just, I, it's, I have to dance. So uh, it was the last shot and she puts on like a black watch cap and sunglasses and a sweatshirt. And um, as the camera pans, you can see her uh, dancing her little heart out um, to that song. Aww. She's looking at herself dancing. <laughs> so anyway. That's amazing. Yeah. Stimkins, this has been amazing. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you yes, so much for you, your time. Thank you. This yeah. is amazing. Happy to do it. And I'm I'm really, I, I love the fact that you guys are, are such New World fans and you're sort of carrying the torch forward um, and introducing <laughs> uh, these great, great old movies to... Uh, to new people and um, a new audience. It's really fantastic. And oh. thank you for for uh, for calling me up. I, I appreciate the chance to gas on about the, you know, <laughs> no, all this is great. fun to do. So, so, great. Great. so much great stuff. Thank uh, you. We can't wait for your for what comes next with your spec script. We hope we wish you all the thank best you. with it. Can't wait to Thank see you. another uh, David Simpkins joint uh, in, in cinemas near you. So we're Thank excited you. for I that. Hope, I hope so too. All yeah. right. And that's it. That's our talk with David Simpkins. What an great incredibly great guy. That was yeah. so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. Great point, Mark. That was so much fun. <laughs> great point. 
Thank you, Erica. Thank you. I appreciate that. Making a lot of good uh, points. I feel like I'm really hitting my stride. I'm finally hitting my stride with this podcast. So I'm, yeah, I'm you feeling are, good. Feeling good. Is, by the way, almost our third year anniversary. Wow. And our first episode, of course, being Children of the Corn. This is a really special mm-hmm. Corntober for us. Yeah. Look how far we've come. It Look is. how far we've come. Mark's yeah. finally hitting his stride. 2023 is when I actually start getting good. Yeah, I I, so, I have yet to hit my stride, so who knows? I might hit that in 2024, 25, you never know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I've already peaked, so. You, you hit your stride <laughs> totally as soon as we came out of the gates. Only downhill from here. <laughs> <laughs> but there's plenty more Corntober to come after this next week. We are going to talk about the Vineyard, 1989's The mm. Vineyard. More things to come for Corntober. Make sure you stick around to listen to all the episodes. We've got plenty more going around. Thank you, Simpkins. <laughs> Thank you, Simpkins. Uh, and uh, rate and review this episode. Follow us on all the socials. We'll see you next time on the New World Pictures Podcast. Bye, everybody.